Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Right, here we go with another podcast and Rob uh, dog days of summer I guess but BC politics never stops and oh. we still have lots to talk about this week and we have two special guests on the podcast today would you like to introduce them yeah it's a, you know you're right I mean even though the legislature is not in session there's still a ton going on and there's lots of really interesting items that have popped up so we brought on two special guests uh, who have their own podcast which is called Call the Question, and it's a new BC political podcast where they talk politics with expert women who bring smart, interesting, clever takes on today's most compelling political issues. And longtime uh, BC poly commentator, so they're probably well known to our listeners as well, but we want to thank them for coming on the show. Leslie Bolt, who is a well-known public affairs communications professional, president of Bolt Communications. Hello, Leslie. Hi. Hi, Leslie. And Maria Dobrinsky is a political strategist and the BC director of the Broadbent Institute, a national progressive think tank. Thank you for coming on, Maria. Thanks for having us. Hi, Maria. Tell us a bit about your podcast. I mean, I've been listening to it. It's very interesting. You're doing, you're doing something different, uh, a different voice in the political landscape out there. Tell us a bit about what you're doing and how it's been going so far. Well, um, Maria and I, we we love talking politics, and um, we love talking politics uh, with women. But we do find a lot of the, uh, the the dominant political voices in BC and Canadian politics are are still predominantly uh, dudes, and <laughs> so we want to do something a little bit different. And because there's so many incredible. Uh, experienced political women who have are doing incredible things. They're leaders in their fields, and 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 we don't we don't get to talk to them. We don't get to hear from them as much as we'd like. And how has it been going so far? You've had what four, five, six shows. Is it? Uh, tell us a bit about your guests and and what kind of things you've been talking about. Yeah, well, we've had. Um, I mean, we've been taping a little bit ahead. We're not a new. You know, we're not as timely in our news response. Um, in the kind of format that you guys do. Uh, we release every couple of weeks and um, we've been interviewing women, we, you know, former uh, candidates, uh, former elected officials. Uh, we had Verinda Rossotti on, a, a former Surrey city councillor and uh, mayoral candidate, uh, Patty Bacchus, a well-known uh, commentator on education issues, former chair of the Vancouver School Board, um, and a bunch of other really exciting women. I mean, it's been great um, to to just hear from them. And to just, I mean, our list is really quite long, actually. One of the things that's come up in our conversations is uh, how much more uh, of these conversations we could be having. And while there has been more space for sure in the political landscape for women, more women running for office, more women in staffing roles, you know, you guys have way more women colleagues in the press gallery now. Uh, than even a few years ago, um, there's still, you know, a long, a long ways to go in terms of 
uh, taking up more space um, in the political landscape. It was interesting. Yeah, one of our sorry, one go of our ahead. Guest was yeah, one of your first our first guest was your colleague in the press gallery, Lisa Yusef from News Eleven Thirty, and we had a great time chatting with her about what what's going down at the ledge. It was interesting listening to your last podcast. You were talking a bit about you've had so many. Um, you know, strong, high-profile women come on and tell their experiences that you were hoping to get to a point where you don't necessarily have to tell that experience as if it is unique. You can you can move on to talk about the issues in a way because you're you're kind of repeating uh, in some ways the the difficulties that women are finding both in politics and commentating on politics, being involved in different areas of politics. It's it's interesting to hear their stories, but then also get a different perspective from them on the issues of the of totally. the day outside of just their own individual story. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that, that's exactly it. We want to find that balance. You know, I would love to just be able to talk to women as, as experts in their respective fields, right? Not have to be a woman in politics just to be somebody who's in politics. Um, but one of the things that I think has been um, really good for a number of women and, and hopefully uh, our male listeners as well is actually hearing this sort of the systemic nature of what so many women are up against. When you have women, you know, very accomplished, coming from different sectors, basically facing the same barriers and repeating very, very similar stories, you know, it's clear it's not an isolated um, experience. And I think it's really helpful for women to, to hear that part of being a woman in politics often. And again, the more of us that there are, the, the less this experience is, is true, but it's feeling like, you know, you're existing in a space that's not really made for you. And so the more women hear from each other around it, I think the more we can break that away. And then again, as you said, just focus on, on their commentary and, and expertise. Yeah. yeah. And, and our, our, our next series, which will be starting uh, in August, is going to, going to do exactly that. We're going to focus a, a more on the issues and some of the women that are breaking new ground in, in some of the policy sectors like, you know, housing and business that, that Maria and I and, and hopefully our listeners are also inter- interested in. Well, it's a great podcast and I highly recommend to our listeners, you, you have a listener, it's called Call the Question. You can find it on most of the Apple and Stitcher and uh, most of your podcast uh, providers and uh, we'll recap at the end of the show a bit about how you can uh, you can find it and follow both of you on social media and uh, go from there but thank you so much for being on the show this week and we'll dive right into some of the topics smitty you have been burning up the old airwaves on the issue some of your columns you've been writing on the uh, union of bc municipalities accepting chinese donations from the from the government of china and the kind of questions that have been raised right. about the appropriateness of that. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that Maria and Leslie are here. I think it's a great idea for a podcast, you guys, and uh, and uh, I really recommend it too. So it's called your co- Thanks, podcast. Mike. Yeah, for sure. Then Call the Question is the name of the podcast. So let me call the question right now on this uh, Chinese money at, uh, at the UBCM. <laughs> and I got into this with uh, a guy who has made a, a name for himself in very short order. His name is Brad West, the rookie sort of newly elected mayor in Port Coquitlam, young mayor, uh, very outspoken, ringing the alarm bell about the UBCM accepting a sponsorship from the People's Republic of China and also putting on a reception for UBCM delegates. So this is a huge conference that goes on every year. They get like over 2,000 delegates, goes on for many, many days. And this reception had been controversial in the past. I think the new wrinkle on it is 
the money that the China had also been giving to the UBCM as a sponsorship. And at first, they didn't want to say how much money uh, they were giving to the UBCM. And they finally did kind of cough it up to me and said it was $6,000. Now, that's not, I guess, a, a big amount of money in relative terms. But I wonder, Leslie, if I call the question to you, what do you what do you think about that? Because I, I think any amount of money at, at this point, given current relations with China, and we've seen developments on that today, by the way, with China uh, banning Canadian meat imports, that I don't think this is the greatest time for the Union of BC municipalities to be kind of taking money from China. What do you think? No, I don't think it's a very, to your point, it's not a very strategic move on their part, especially considering everything that's going on on with uh, Huawei and trade and, you know, Trump, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's not a good look. Um, I do think it also raises the question in a broader sense of how UBCM approaches sponsorships in general, you know, how you get access, um, that the, the notion of, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see it, but money for access and, and I know it's a continuum, and, and I'm sure many of the sponsorships are, are relatively harmless in that regard. But I think that um, I'm glad that the mayor has raised this, and I think it, it's an opportunity to, to take a closer look at, at who they're taking money from and what for. Maria, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I agree with all that. I think, obviously, the situation with China right now makes this a more uh, heated point. This reception, my understanding is it's been going on since 2013. So this is something, and I believe that it actually has been raised previously in terms of the appropriateness of it. You know, I mean, one of my takes that might not be that popular is, you know, because I agree that we should be looking at sponsorship in general, right? There's a number of organizations and businesses that do, uh, you know, that have interest in local government issues that are not, that are hosting, you know, hosting events or breakfasts or part of the program are contributing sponsor in one in some way. So if those sponsors are, you know, when is, so it's all cash for access. So is the issue China? I think there's a lot of reasons why the answer to that is yes. Uh, but more broadly, what is the relationship or what should the relationship be between elected officials and, uh, you know, entities that have yeah. respective interests with them? And, you know, I mean, the other thing I'll just say is sort of in defense of local government and UBCM, is that you know they're 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 the least they have the least amount of revenues available to them of any level of government, and so you know UBCM the membership uh, is mayors and councils from throughout the province they contribute to the coffers of the organization and and the organization is therefore answerable to them as well so I think that there, we are likely to see uh, a motion on the floor or some kind of of process in their September proceedings directly related to this. But in the absence of these sponsors, who pays for municipal politicians to convene like this? I think it's important for them. I mean, I think there's often a perception that these politicians get together and, you know, go to go and schmooze at these different receptions. And I don't think that's a, a wrong perception. But I also think there's value in having local government meet on a province-wide basis. And if sponsorship is is off the table, um, then then we need to look at tax dollars. And I personally think that there's a, you know, that we should be having some of those conversations. So I see it as, a, as, as several different issues. China specifically, sponsorship in general and cash for access 
And then how do we actually fund governments and politicians to be able to effectively do the work that we elect them to do? Yeah, because we're, we're in a province now where we've, we've banned corporate and union donations in political campaigns, which I think is a good thing. And we've also banned foreign uh, political donations as well. And it's something that the UBCM generally has been supportive of. And so I do think it looks a little hypocritical to be taking money, um, even even if it's a relatively small amount. I mean, 6000 bucks. I mean, it's not really that much. I mean, you could put on this conference by kissing off $6,000. I mean, it's not going to make or break this conference. But I think it's just a bad look. And I wrote another column about this this week, Rob, pointing out that the the Liberal caucus here at the BC legislature wanted to put on some events at the UBCM this fall. They wanted to put on some uh, accountability panels with their MLAs. And they asked the UBCM, can we get in your program? Like, put us in your program, put us on your website, maybe mention this on your, your mobile phone app. And uh, they were told, no, you have to buy a sponsorship. And I thought that's ridiculous. So here we have a situation where you've got the government of China that were in this diplomatic fight with getting kind of red carpet treatment but the official opposition at the bc legislature is not on the program because they wouldn't pay the money so i mean what is wrong with this with this picture and i i suspect that it will come up for maybe discussion on the floor in september but i wonder also if the executive of the ubcm might be getting together earlier than that at their next meeting maybe and have a rethink over this and say you know what maybe we don't need this six thousand dollars yeah, you do hear from the UBCM kind of rumblings that they may, in fact, try to address this in July. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because uh, you kicked them pretty hard on this one, Smitty. And I think actually it was, you know, uh, full credit to uh, Mayor Brad West from Port Coquitlam, who likes to kind of dive into some issues headlong and really stir things up and get the public talking about it. He's been very active on the public inquiry call uh, for money laundering and really, I think, helped drive that issue as well. So good on him. Well, he's he's not getting, you know, not everybody's a fan of him, though, I point out. Um, there are some people think that he's kind of basically peddling and kind of populist clickbait kind of stuff. I mean, Pete Fry, the uh, Green Party uh, Vancouver City Councillor, told me that he supports this uh, this uh, reception with China and the sponsorship because he thinks it's important for uh, local governments to have good relations with our second largest trading partner. We do billions of dollars of business with China, right? So he thinks that Brad West is just kind of, uh, you know, just putting uh, populist buttons out there just to get uh, political support. And this guy is no dummy. He, he knows, I'm sure, that he's he is making some populist statements here. But at the same time, I think he's on the right side of it. Yeah, it's, it's hard to feel sorry for the liberals. You know, it's the world's tiniest violin when you, you think about the BC liberals sometimes. I guess, it's just the principle. But it, it is the principle, yeah. It's the idea of whoever is in op- <laughs> opposition probably should be able to go and talk to, you know, hold some roundtables at the UBCM without having to shell out well, yeah. money that's going to come from another one of taxpayers' pockets through the, the caucus funds here. Right, right. Uh, whether it's the Liberals or the NDP or the Greens or whoever's the official opposition, you should probably allow them to be on the program without having to take money from them. But I agree. It, it is, uh, I think, I and we go around the table one more time on this. Does anyone think that this is going to survive in its current form uh, for UBCM this fall? Or will there be a, a eureka moment from the executive that uh, will change this all up before before the fall? Leslie? Well, I think it's worthwhile. I actually think it's worthwhile for the UBCM to take a look at another look at this. It sounds to me like they've been doing things a certain way, whether it's uh, caucus 
access or, you know, sponsorship, re- reception sponsorship for a long time. And so it's, I think it's worthwhile, regardless of what they, they decide, to take another close look at this. Um, uh, because I, I think that, uh, y- you know, we, this bell has been rung. It can't be unrung. And, and people like yourselves, but also political watchers like us, are going to be paying close attention to, you know, who they take money from in the future as well. So taking a look at those sponsorship guidelines is, is probably a really good idea at the very least. Maria, you have a kind of related uh, topic. You have been looking at an Angus Reid poll that came out in the last week or so about uh, you know, Canadians' views of politicians. And there's some very interesting findings in there that I think maybe play into a bit of some of the perception that the public uh, has about local politicians, provincial and federal politicians that maybe influences the dialogue a bit on the uh, the Chinese UBCM story. What what stood out for you in this Angus Reid poll? Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so they were looking, um, I mean, the, the thrust of the poll is all do you trust politicians? Federal candidates are the least favorably viewed. Uh, municipal candidates are the most. But generally, very, very high levels, disturbingly high levels for democracy um, of people, two-thirds, 64% of Canadians say politicians cannot be trusted. And one-third, uh, 32%, believe they're primarily motivated by personal gain rather than a genuine desire to serve their communities. And so, you know, I think this public dissatisfaction uh, with politicians, I think, is, you know, fed certainly by stories like this. The visuals of a bunch of municipal politicians being wined and dined by the, the Chinese government doesn't really help to instill confidence that your politicians are doing the work that you sent them to, uh, you know, Victoria or Ottawa or to your local city council to do. So, I mean, I personally, based on on the work I do with broadband and stuff, I, I have big concerns about just the the growing dissatisfaction with our democratic institutions, and I think it poses a very interesting uh, dynamic uh, for us, for those of us who comment on news items, people who cover it in the media, like you guys, in terms of how to effectively. Uh, be critical of governments that are, you know, and a lot of criticism is warranted in, in, in a number of situations and not just have this race to the bottom of feeding into, uh, you know, this, this distrust of all, they're all feeding at the trough and they're not there to, to do the important work. So I think it's a, I think it's a challenge. It is. I mean, I found the idea in this poll that one third of respondents believe that politicians are primarily motivated by personal gain rather than a genuine desire to serve their communities. To me, I, I and Leslie, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this because I, I read that and I thought, okay, well, is that the end result of essentially what our election campaigns are now, which is very effective, negative, personal attack uh, campaigns? And we saw it in 2017 where the idea is you tear down the leader of the opposing party, you describe them publicly as being corrupt, as only uh, wanting to do policies to benefit their friends and donors, whether it's the steelworkers or the business community or the liberal donors, um, you know, and you go back and forth ripping to shreds 
another uh, person as a, as the leader of the party until you get to the point where, um, you know, you pretty much hate that other person because uh, it looks like they are only in it for themselves. So does it, is this a legacy, do you think, of, of not only the campaigns being run like that, but also people talking about it, the media reporting on it like that, and we just kind of end up with this salted earth when it comes to people giving politicians the benefit of the doubt? I, I think so. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a well-known fact that campaigns are all, to your point, about tearing people down and, and demolishing your enemy. And But governing is all about consensus and working together and coming to or it should be if it's not, you know, Maria and I would say we need proportional representation would, would deconstruct a lot of this <laughs> dynamic, but too late. that ship has, too late. That ship has sailed. Yeah. Um, but I, that doesn't mean we can't do anything about it. And um, it is a, it is a risk to our democracy. It's very exciting to cover these, um, these scandals and, and, and they should be covered that you, you both have done great work on this, the 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 chaos at the legislature around the uh, the former clerk and the sergeant at arms and and everything that's been going on there and continues to go go on and it's appropriate that that you should be covering that and and critiquing that but it does kind of create the sense that and stories like that about politicians more specifically create that sort of that lack of confidence in in folks and yet. We all know, all of us, that there are many, many politicians who are in it for all the right reasons, and self-interest is not really one of them. And they're they're dedicated to public service, and so this this trend is a real disservice to them. The one thing that I'll add, um, as well, and and we certainly learned this in um, in our podcast talking to women that have run for office, is that it's very, very difficult. To um, to convince women to run for office, and there's lots of studies to back that up as well. And and unfortunately, this lack of trust and this cynicism makes it even harder to convince you know women and um, underrepresented communities, people of color, you know why sign up for 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 this kind of work when when you're going to be so vulnerable in the public eye. So from that perspective, I think it's a, it's a problem as well. Sometimes I wonder, Smitty, um, if, and I've, I've thought of interesting part of this poll was the idea that 63% of people in BC polled um, don't know anyone who has run for public office. And I kind of wonder if that, the, the idea, the combination of so few people actually knowing someone who runs for office, local, provincial, or federal, uh, and being able to humanize the process of, of running for elected office, combined with the fact that we have, uh, in provincial politics at least, so many safe ridings where an MLA can sit there for 20 years and continually get reelected. Someone, two, you know, two decades of a voter's life can be gone with the same face uh, representing them in a community. I, I can't help yeah. but think that must contribute to the idea that, that you, people kind of lose this thread that running for, for office is something that's relatable and not just this same face they've seen for 20 years. It's discouraging. It, it is. Um, I think everybody needs to do better. I think media political parties. I think everyone needs to do a, a better job of being fair and and respectful. I think a lot of the problems are driven by social media. Like there's a lot of hate yep. and anger and uh, lies that Trolls. are slung Trolls. around. Yeah, yeah. On like Twitter, Facebook, 
et cetera. I think that drives a lot of it. But, you know, I tend to be an optimistic person. And I, if I take a look at kind of um, demographics of our country right now, and you take a look at sort of millennial voters, for example, which are now in this election coming up federally in the fall, millennial voters are a huge voting potential voting block of people who are newly eligible to vote. And the voting rates among young people have been discouragingly low, but there are some hopeful signs of young people getting more engaged and maybe the voter turnout will go up this time. And, and I would hope that, you know, media organizations and political parties, too, would do a better job of, of reaching out to young people and, and, and getting them engaged. And maybe that can make it better. That's a good point. We, we, we only talk about it during elections and, and during the PR campaign, for example. Maria, did you, you want to jump in there? Well, yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think the social media, um, not only the ease of which it, it exists to just be really mean to somebody in a way that you, most of us would never act in real life. Right. Um, it also just like the short attention spans of everybody, right? We're living in this, you know, we're inundated by information. And so even when you have people, you know, earnestly saying, well, I want to discuss policy, like, you don't really want to discuss policy, right? Like that takes a long time and it takes like more context and negotiation and discussion. Quick hits and 140 characters um, are easy to fire off. And we also know that negative campaigning works. So I think all of that contributes. And I agree that everybody could do, do a better job. Rob, I just wanted to pick up on your point though. I thought I also agree that that comment around not knowing anyone who has run, I thought was really interesting. We have a conversation coming up uh, in an upcoming uh, podcast around partisanship. And, you know, only like 2% of Canadians, maybe it's three, um, are members of political parties. And and I think, you know, it's like 10 or 11% of people have been at some point. And, you know, you guys work closely uh, in a building, closely with politicians. I, I've had the benefit of working with a number of politicians as well. And I would see even those who I don't agree with, um, I think most of them are there for the right reasons, right? I don't necessarily agree with the policy route that they want to take, but people generally get into it because, it, you know, for good reasons, because it's actually a lot of work, right? The, the, the things that get highlighted are the, again, the schmoozing, the receptions, the whining and dining, the high um, expense paid uh, trips places, but the late, the late nights, the, the slog of debates, I mean, again, particularly at, at local levels, we just saw, I don't know, it was almost 20 hours, maybe it wasn't quite that long, of public hearings on, uh, you know, for single development going on. And so I think that the, the work, you know, the fact that people think that politicians are in it for the money um, shows that we have a lot of work to do just around political education in our country. Yeah. And, and what does it look like? to run for office, who runs for office, how do you do that? And um, and then again, as you said, like the, the, the pro-rep campaigns behind us, but what reforms could we be implementing? You know, political parties should be engaging people beyond the election period, but there's a lot of parameters and rules that actually don't enable them to do that. So who's doing that work? And anyways, I just think that there's more, I mean, I appreciate your optimism, Mike, and I generally am an optimist uh, as well. And I think that uh, there is a heightened awareness around the fragility, I guess, of our democracy. We're certainly watching what's going on and, you know, to the south of us and other parts of the, the world and things that we've had the benefit of taking for granted for a long time, I think are, are you know, increasingly we're, 
we're mindful that uh, that what we've got here is pretty good, and we need to keep working to to make sure it. it stays that way and gets better. It's uh, it's tough, you know, because those of us who work with politicians <clears throat> or, or see them quite a bit, we, we do tend to realize that there are human beings who very, very, very few of them are here uh, for the money. It's not they work hard. It's not really that great a money when yeah, you consider that. MLA, MLAs work hard. Yeah. And, and yet the problem, the problem we have when we if people keep saying, well, why doesn't the media, you know, write some more stories about the people behind the politicians? And I, I've found you know, and I've been doing this now in my 11th year. It's difficult because I remember during the the last teacher strike, for example, I had to write a couple profiles. One was of uh, Peter Fassbender, who was the education minister at the time, and that ran on day one. Holy sweet mercy, you know, like I got vilified. <laughs> I, was a, I was a yellow journalist who doesn't know how to do a job. The teachers came after me. I was, uh, what kind of journalism school did you fail out of, you piece of garbage? You're like a, you're like a liberal puppet or whatever. Yeah. And then the next day we ran the profile on Jim Iker, who was the BCTF president. It was finally the mainstream media gets it right with this great profile of oh. this guy. With this. And I, it's hard to humanize politicians down here because the opponents on the other side, um, the real partisans don't want to see it that way. They really don't want to hear that. You know, I remember trying to do it once with Mike DeYoung when he was finance minister about this cheap, frugal, Abbotsford, you know, Dutch farmer who, you know, picks up his old crappy tractor and hotwires it because he doesn't want to buy a new one in his old car. And people just dumped on me. They're, you can't write about Mike DeYoung. You're just trying to puffball him. And it is very difficult down here sometimes to just point out that these are people with histories and experience. They come into the jobs and cabinet. They're doing, they bring a, you know, a background with them. They are not here to pad their own pockets. And I'm not sure, we're sort of drifting away from those long profiles that do that kind of thing now because the criticism in the hyperpartisan environment we're in is is so rough on that. Well, so let, you- let me just jump in there and say now that we've all decided to be nicer to each other, uh, let me just uh, rip a strip off this corrupt, incompetent government. On uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But I do want to talk about this electric vehicle rebate. Oh, now, yeah. I first heard about this on speaking of social media. I saw it, I believe, on your Twitter, Rob. Uh oh. That you had pointed out that the government had put out this news release about reducing this these rebates. For electric vehicles, which I, by the way, I think is a terrific program to encourage people to get into electric cars, right? Yeah. And you pointed out that they had put out, the government put out a very sneaky news release on a Saturday morning with a misleading headline. And I think it was because they didn't, they were kind of hoping people wouldn't notice that they were were cutting this rebate for electric vehicles. Uh, What are your (laughs) thoughts there? Yeah, the headline on the news release was, BC tops up electric vehicle rebate program. And then there's several paragraphs (laughs) before you get down to the fourth paragraph in the second sentence, which is, I'd say, about like 75% of the way through the whole news release, points out that, in fact, they're reducing the electric vehicle rebate from $5,000 to $3,000 for most vehicles. That should be the headline right there. So just in framing this discussion for everyone, I just kind of, I'm wondering what you, A, think of the reduction in the rebate program. And the justification from government is there was massive sales, the federal rebate program, plus a scrap it program here meant a whole bunch of people bought electric vehicles. We ran out of money. We needed to reduce it to keep the program going. So that's one. The, The second question is, should we have found more money in the budget to keep the program going at the full $5,000? And I guess the third is, what does it mean in a larger sense? Because the electric vehicle vehicle program was part of the Clean BC Climate Program 
that is very important to government. This is a centerpiece of that. And yet we're, we're either um, lowering it very early because of how successful it has been. Or we're kind of backing away a little bit from it because we don't have the money. And I'm kind of wondering what, what we make of all that. Maybe, um, Leslie, start us off on what you think of this. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, it's been incredibly effective. And if if anything, this government policy is a victim of its own success. Um, And and I would like to take a step back, though, and just talk about why these incentives exist in the first place. They, they, They exist to help people make the switch away from fossil fuel power vehicles to electric vehicles. And um, I think the the result is they've really, this policy has kickstarted that momentum and it's desperately critical um, for for our province over the next 30 years to make that switch. Now, having said that, uh, yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it, I am concerned, as someone who's concerned about the climate emergency, um, that, uh, that that this rebate has been reduced. I'm not sure what the impact will be. Uh, it remains to be seen, given to your point that there are a number of other incentives, incentives available to, to vehicle buyers. Um, so, as I said, it's, the policy is a bit of a victim of its, of its own success. Maria, do you have any thoughts on – there was a very interesting article – uh, by my colleague Matt Robinson in The Sun, who is talking a bit about how the electric vehicle rebate program has tended to, in some people's mind, benefit what we would call maybe the middle, upper class uh, folks who can, A, afford a fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 electric vehicle, but it, in some ways, more importantly, have a home that they own in which they can install a charging station. And there's a lot of people out there who are renting or they're condo or strata owners in a building where it's way too expensive to upgrade the electrical system to put in charging stations. And so when you look at the program from that sense, do you have any thoughts on, I mean, yes, it's good, but is it it helping people who don't even need rebates in some ways afford their $70,000 Tesla? Yes, it is, exactly. I mean, I think that... Any kind of incentives around uh, electric vehicles or zero emission vehicles is symbolically really important, uh, but I view it as, as transitional technology. I would rather, you know, I think it still reinforces a dependence on single occupancy vehicles. Yeah. You know, we're, we're still yeah. not at a point where some of the, the transportation that most needs to make the switch away from fossil fuels, so the movement of, of, of goods primarily, um, and, you know, and people in rural areas who need an, an independent vehicle, um, right now, n- those are not being covered by um, electric vehicles, largely because yeah. of technology. So I think, you know, and I think that lowering the rebate, I mean, first of all, I always think it's, you know, notwithstanding uh, the press release, I think government saying this was this worked really well we're switching it because it's we're a victim of our own success is fine. Like I, I don't mind governments reviewing whether or not policies are working and adjusting accordingly. I think the fact that the feds came in in, in March, I guess, whenever their budget was uh, with some big incentives as well, certainly impacted that. So lowering the amount, but what they also did in changing the rebate was they lowered the amount of the vehicle, right? So I think it was 70 something thousand dollars mm-hmm. before now it's down to 55. Right. So that does, in my right. opinion, help with this sort of who's benefiting from it. And, um, you know, that study, I think it was in the U S but I suspect it's similar here. Most people, 
um, who are buying them might have already been people who are buying them. You know, I, cer- I certainly think the gas prices that we've, we've seen um, over the last couple of months uh, largely played a role. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that overall um, it's important symbolically. It's a very it's something that people I'm encouraged by how many people want to make this move. I think there's a, a strong shift that we've seen in the last year or two. Uh, of really making the the interest in addressing climate crisis like widespread, people want to do their part. Yeah. Um, but I personally would like to see some larger investments um, in transit, in you know, in building communities, so that people are not reliant on uh, personally owning a vehicle. I know those are not uh, things that are going to pop up tomorrow. So, but I think we need a, a a range of things here. But I think feeling good about something concrete like lower emission vehicles uh, or zero emission vehicles is is good. And, you know, and then kudos to the BC government and, and the feds as well for having that kind of response. And we'll see. I think it's also, you know, the first year of any policy is always interesting. What are the unintended uh, effects? Did it do what it was supposed to do? Um, so having some data in, you know, a year of, of uh, having this policy in place, uh, looking at what those sales were like, looking at how the sales changed um, after the reduction of the threshold of yeah. the rebate, yeah. I think is all going to be important information for the government to have for, for planning going forward. I would just jump in there and say, I think those are really good points that both of you made there. But I, I still think that this this decision looks bad on the government and not only because of the sneaky way they tried to sneak it out on a weekend, but... Um, there's two parts to it. First of all, Maria, you, you mentioned one key one is that is lowering the threshold at which the rebate is available. So it was 77,000 and they put it down to 55,000. I, I think that's actually reasonable because for 77,000 yeah. bucks, you can buy like a BMW or a Mercedes electric vehicle. Yeah. And if you can afford that, I'm not sure you need the rebate. So I think, okay, yeah. fine, put down the threshold. But to reduce the the grant or the rebate from five thousand to three thousand, I thought was a bit of a you know a, a bit of a cheap shot, and I didn't like it. And because I, I think about someone who was maybe thinking of using this program, maybe last week they were thinking, uh, you know, I'd like to buy an electric vehicle, and I like the look of these rebates. And then, well, maybe I'll do it next week. And then you find out over the weekend, the government basically takes two thousand dollars out of your pocket from a, a purchase you were thinking of make, making. So I didn't think that was fair. And also, by the way, in the legislature just like a month ago, uh, during estimates, uh, Michelle Mungal, the energy minister, was was asked some pretty close questions about, about this uh, program. And the guy who was uh, questioning her was Peter Millibar, uh, the liberal MLA, who basically said to her, you're going to run out of money in this program. Because it's going to be it's going to be so popular, and she effectively said, "No, don't worry. Uh, we've got contingencies we can dip into, and we actually think the demand in the program is going to go down." And that was four weeks ago, and then four weeks later, they're cutting the they're cutting the rebate. And this is from a government that has made climate change a high priority with this incredible Clean BC transformative program of, of government po- programs. And this is like a marquee part of it, getting people out of gas guzzling cars and into electric vehicles. So I think it sends the wrong signal. I think it's unfair for people who are, who are planning to take advantage of it. And I think it was very poorly handled. I think it highlights maybe the awkward position government was put in that 
the energy minister couldn't get the money to top this program up from the government. And get it from the carbon tax. I mean, this well, is this carbon is a, tax. Yeah, this, I know is a, this is a government that's taken in billions of dollars in carbon taxes, and they they canceled the the revenue t- neutrality uh, that the the Liberals had in place before, and they said no, we're we're not going to offset the carbon tax with tax reductions elsewhere. We're going to take this money and put it into government. And we're going to do great things with it to save the climate, to save the planet, right? And then what did they do? Taking in billions of dollars in carbon taxes, and they cut. A rebate for electric vehicles? Come on. I think like, it, where's the rest of the money going? Well, I think it's a reminder of how tight the provincial finances are right now. When, oh, yeah. you fund, when you fund electric vehicle rebates out of contingencies, and you also fund forest firefighting out of contingencies, and you have a very slim surplus uh, for the year, you end up in a position where you, you've basically broken the piggy bank on your contingencies already, and you can't just take more money out of it. And I think, uh, talking to Michelle Mangal this week, she said, couldn't get more money for the program. So the question was... Um, do you let it expire? She said it would have expired within two months at $5,000. And research has shown BC that in Ontario, when you eliminated the rebate program, people stopped buying electric cars. Well, that's so she, right. So that's she said, right. so we could have flatlined the program or we could have cut it down and hopefully uh, extend it to the rest of the year at a lesser amount. Well, demand has gone down in jurisdictions where they've reduced the rebates as well. Yeah, so what's that what's that sweet spot for the rebate that is going to make the difference in terms of those purchases? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the, I mean I, I hear everything you're saying. It'll be interesting to look at those figures now that there will essentially be a year in which you could see the before and after uh in terms of the two different levels of rebates and what impact um they had in terms of, of purchasing decisions. It's still a good deal though. I mean, even with three thousand, you get a there's a federal rebate of five thousand. Now the provincial yeah. rebate has been knocked down to three thousand, so that's still eight thousand bucks. Yeah, you can get off of yeah. an, an electric vehicle. And I was just looking up the price of some of the cheaper ones you can get. You can get a Chevrolet Spark for twenty-seven thousand. A Nissan Leaf is twenty-nine thousand. So you knock eight grand off of that. That's still a pretty yeah, good, still a pretty good deal. That's the thing. Is that two thousand dollars going to be enough to change somebody's uh, behavior? Probably, Probably in some not. situations that is yeah. going to be the case. But again, going back to some of this U.S. research, most people who are are buying electric vehicles with incentive rebates were light were you know were well positioned to likely do that anyway. So. Yeah. Here's what I, here's what I'd like to see the government do on this is help the Stratas that are facing multi-hundred-thousand-dollar yeah. bills to upgrade their yeah, electrical service. for sure. Maybe with, like, interest-free loans to Stratas to, so that you can get this done. And also, great, I was talking to, point. talking to the president of Hyundai Canada not that long ago, and he said the single biggest thing government could do right now to reduce range anxiety for people who can't afford their own chargers is to mandate that all private gas stores in the province have to put at least one electric charging station oh, in. Oh, wow. And suddenly you have an instant distribution network across the province. And I ran that by the energy minister who said, well, um, well, we're, we, we think the private sector will take care of this. But if, imagine oh. if you did that. You'd, you'd have, well, I, think, I, I you mean, need... I think that issue of, of range anxiety is the big one, right? Like I, I read something, this was a while ago, and I don't have it at top of uh, mind, but that that is actually a bigger disincentive to most people considering buying an electric vehicle than the price. Yeah. Is that they don't know where they're going to be able to charge it or with regularity. Yeah. And there's increasingly, uh, I've, I've been surprised at how many places there actually are, but I also don't think there's enough, you know, publicity around it or marketing. Like people don't know where they are. I mean, I guess once you buy an electric vehicle, you become pretty good at learning yeah. where you can charge it. But, and, um, and I just wanted to jump in yeah. here and say right. that, that, that the private sector won't 
take care of it, at least not yet. There's got to be some public sector involvement. And here in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, the municipal government under the Greenest City Action Plan was quite aggressive in, in proactively um, installing charging stations all over to, to be part of that incentive pie. But that's not consistent across municipalities or certainly not in rural areas of BC. So there's we have a long way to go. And I think that the public sector, when it comes to that charging piece, charging station piece, needs to be involved in some way. Okay, we're we're already running long, but there's two more topics we want to touch on here, and I'll I'll let uh, Leslie or or Maria pick up this one, and uh, unless we have a we don't maybe don't need to do a roundtable on it, but the Airbnb issue, there's been some uh, some research that has come out and uh, suggested that, especially in cities with low vacancy rates like Vancouver and Victoria, where the vacancy rate for rentals is basically like zero or 0.7 percent. Um, that uh, Airbnb has been taking the use of Airbnb has been taking out properties that would otherwise have really helped the the rental market in the city. I don't know uh, whichever one of you would like to walk us through that and just give us some thoughts on that. And then also we want to touch on as our second topic before we run out of time the issue of uh, government property surplus asset sales, which uh, has been a series in our newspaper worth uh, kicking around. But let's let's do Airbnb first. So who'd like to take us through that? Yeah, I, uh, I'll jump in on that. I mean, I just think it was interesting in this last week, we saw this big study come out of Montreal. Um, yeah, that basically said, you know, 31,000 units, I think, um, is what they uh, assessed would have been taken out of Canada's long-term rental market um, in order to supply the short-term rental market through Airbnb. And so, you know, they point, they highlighted Vancouver as a place that has address this effectively through regulations, um, largely through needing to have a business license. So you actually need to apply to the city in order to register um, your home as as an Airbnb. And you can also only rent out your primary residence. So what they're trying to do with that is combat what we've seen happen, um, you know, I think in both cities we live in, both Victoria and Vancouver, and certainly across the country, where people are essentially buying up developers or, or uh, private citizens, but buying up multiple properties and condo buildings that are not being used for anything other than renting them out to um, Airbnb uh, clients. Now, that's problematic because those are units that, that could be on in the rental market. And it's, again, it's a very different thing than okay, I'm going away for a month and I want to, you know, cover my mortgage when I'm gone and I'm going to rent my place out, um, you know, on a, on a case-by-case basis like that. So that's when it came out of Montreal. And then a couple of days later, um, there was uh, some news about the, the amount of money that the British Columbian government, as well as municipalities in BC, have collected in PST um, from Airbnb. And so I think it's $14 million uh, that has gone to the, the BC government has collected in PST through an agreement with Airbnb, um, which I think is interesting uh, to know. Airbnb has been quite positive in terms of um, talking about. So they see it as, uh, you know, as benefiting um, them. I think reputationally, it certainly does. That's $14 million in the government coffers that is dedicated to affordable housing. So it's a way to sort of help offset some of the the challenges that Airbnb, um, uh, you know, taking up rental accommodations has created. 
And so, I mean, all of this to me points to um, the need for some regulatory capacity around a bunch of these services that have have popped up really quickly and are very popular for good reason, um, but often have sort of taken off more quickly than than governments have been able to sort of uh, you know create regulations around and and ensure that there isn't um, you know un, uh, unforeseen harm through through the rental market or you know otherwise happening as a result of that. So yeah, yeah, it seems like Vancouver's got a pretty good approach to this issue. Uh, Leslie, there, do you have any thoughts on this, uh, this topic? Well, just that, that I'm a little bit concerned, uh, particularly in Vancouver, that the current city council is taking another look at regulation and looking at relaxing some of these regulations. The one that, that Maria mentioned specifically that uh, Councillor Melissa DiGenova is looking at is the relaxing the requirement around um, just renting out your, your principal residence. You know, so that if people own other properties, they can rent those out too. And I would see that, that that's going backwards in terms of addressing some of the the unintended negative impacts of, of the Airbnb model. Yeah, and, and Pete Fry, another uh, councillor in Vancouver, suggesting that maybe um, corporations or businesses be allowed yeah. to to yeah. have hotels essentially operate a hotel on a couple floors of a of a development for ten years uh, in order to help them uh, incentivize some more rental. I'm not sure about that idea. I'm not sure how many people uh, want to live in me a hotel. Neither. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think when you have a national study highlighting Vancouver as being the city that's most effectively addressed uh, some of the challenges posed by Airbnb through regulations, it's not necessarily the time to sort of reopen um, those said regulations. Let, let's, <laughs> let's hit on our last topic here, which is, the idea of government property sell-offs. And our colleague at the Vancouver Sun, Lori Culbert, fantastic reporter, uh, did a couple of uh, big look, deep dive stories into the issue of the government's asset sales. Now, this goes back to 2012 when the Liberal government decided uh, it needed to start selling off the uh, the silverware to try and keep the budget balanced. And it was a controversial idea at the time. The government claimed it was a, we have a bunch of surplus properties that we don't need in, in the province. That was the government's claim. And B, we're going to get a good amount of money and generate some economic activity, get things going with these. Uh, Lori found that a whole bunch of school sites, uh, healthcare sites were sold. And uh, in one of her stories, and I encourage you to go read uh, both of them on the Vancouver Sun website, um, that some of these properties went for below assessed value to liberal yeah. donors, which is <laughs> which is always which is always an interesting uh, sales uh, strategy. Now, I, I guess there's <laughs> I guess there's two issues here. One is. Um, should government be selling surplus properties? It, all governments have to a certain extent, including this government. Um, I, I don't know. There's a, that debate whether these lands are held in trust for people or they should be sold if it's a piece of scrub land on the side of a highway and maybe someone can develop it. And then B, the, the issue that was the problem here is that selling it to balance the budget announcing you're going to do that, having it on a short time frame, and then just getting taken to the cleaners by the development community, uh, yeah. put government in a really bad position where we didn't realize the value as taxpayers of some of these properties that we should have, uh, Smitty. What I you would just say that that was an awesome uh, series that Lori Culbert did. I agree with you. She's a terrific reporter. And it certainly looks bad on the liberals. Now, this current government has continued uh, selling some of these properties, but a lot of the transactions were started by the liberals 
and then the NDP kind of inherited some of these files. But any government is going to sell uh, excess properties at some times, you know. But I think the question is: Is it reasonable? What are you getting a fair market return on it? And who are and who's buying them? And uh, on all those points, I think the Liberals ended up looking pretty darn bad on it when some of their people were liberal donors were involved in buying this stuff and in some cases under market value. So it doesn't look good on them. Um, another's another sort of indication of how badly bungled uh, things got toward the end of the liberal uh, term in office when they're making decisions like that. Yeah. Leslie. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I want to highlight a specific example that, that your colleague, Lori Kelbert mentioned in her piece which is here in Vancouver, uh, former education, BC Liberal Education Minister Mike Bernier put the Vancouver School Board, whom he eventually fired for refusing to balance their budget by selling off public properties. Um, Bernier put a lot of pressure on the Vancouver School Board to sell one of its uh, properties uh, that now has a hipster mall on it. You guys know the Kingsgate Mall? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. The corner Broadway and Fraser? So the, is that a hipster minister? Well, I, I think it is. There's, <laughs> there's some pretty, uh, pretty hipster folks shopping there. Um, and, and it's, it's a kind of a, it's a popular spot, uh, um, here in Vancouver, especially if you take transit for doing a little shopping on your way home. And so, um, the Vancouver school board owns the land, uh, the, um, but there's a, a mall there, as, as I just mentioned, that's owned by the BD group. Mm, yeah, and interestingly, yeah. your colleague discovered that um, uh, the, the it's, it's easy to discover by looking it up that they're one of the BC Liberal Party's um, major donors. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it does cast into light that that um, incredible pressure that the the BC government put on a local school board to sell properties. But but the other issue that I'd like to mention around this as well, and and your colleague mentioned it in her story, is is they got the, some of these properties that were sold were so, sold at sweetheart prices, and given the the white hot, especially over the past ten years, the white hot real estate market, it's not a smart business decision to sell public assets, um, and and certainly be, like because they're going to uh, um, appreciate in value. But to certainly give the sell them at a cut rate is is insane. Yeah, in my view. Yeah, Maria. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I agree with all that. I think these were not decisions that were made in the best best interest of the taxpayer. Um, and you know, the only thing that I will add is that it it is now part of a pattern uh, that we've seen since um, a new government coming in of the the sort of you know I call it the Wizard of Oz. Uh, fiscal responsibility of the BC Liberals, um, you know, but there's nothing behind the curtain. You start looking at BC Hydro, you look at ICBC, uh, you look at the sort of these fire sales that were made. Maybe they were sweetheart deals for their donors, but maybe they were also ways of bringing cash revenue into the coffers to be able to claim yet another uh, massive surplus. And so it's moving money around that should be invested prudently and thoughtfully and in the long-term interest of taxpayers throughout British Columbia. And a number of the, you know, many of these land decisions uh, look like they were the opposite of that. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's hard to justify in some ways selling off 
um, you know, properties that could be used for healthcare. That doesn't make a lot of sense given that we continually need more healthcare facilities. So I don't get that. And also selling off, yeah. I understand the idea of selling off school land. Um, but at some point you see the districts, the school districts stuck in this cycle of, well, it looks exactly. like they're going to have to consolidate. They sell a bunch of stuff and then suddenly they got to open more schools and they got to go buy more exactly. land. So that doesn't make sense either. Exactly. There, there exactly. are examples, I think, of where it does make sense. And, uh, you know, you look at the back of the legislature, for example, two old, crummy uh, World War II yeah. era bunkers that the government sold the land for and is leasing back as office space. It's beautiful, uh, mixed use, residential, commercial, retail. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the government of any any stripe could have built something that nice. So in some cases... It makes sense. And I don't think the NDP are going to stop doing it either. They're just, it was the compressed timeline and the need to sell it immediately and the fire sale prices and the balance in the budget. It was just a horrible situation for government to put itself in because it didn't realize what it, the potential of what it could have sold these, these properties for. And I think they got, I think we all got hosed on that, um, big time. Uh, although, the one proviso being the auditor general studied it and said she didn't find any evidence of bid rigging. So that doesn't mean they were they weren't crappy deals. It just means they weren't illegally. They, they sold off. They sold off the press gallery parking lot though to build a <laughs> library, which to me is like that's, you know, that's still what kind, of, what kind of priority is that? It's an outrage. It is. It's an yeah. outrage. I'm surprised that priority. didn't get more coverage actually. <laughs> Who's making these decisions? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that brings us probably to the end of the the podcast. It was a pleasure to have both of you on, Leslie and Maria. We really appreciate it. Uh, and enjoy your podcast. We're fans of that. Tell us a bit about how people can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, and subscribe to Call the Question. Sure. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Call the Q Podcast. Um, and if you want to get in more information on our pod um, and find out how you can support us, you can go to boltcommunications.com backslash podcast. That's B-O-L-D-T communications.com backslash podcast and uh, maria how can we uh, stay in touch with you as well uh well i'm on twitter um as you guys know uh at m-d-o-b-r-i-n-s-k-a-y-a and to recall the question as well but that's uh, that's where you'll find my personal handle great and Th- you can find me you can find me at leslie bolt on twitter as well Great. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you, uh, Michael J. Smith, my colleague uh, in arms here for another wonderful podcast. We're going to chug through some of the summer. Are we, we're, we'll be back next week. It's uh, show must go on. This show, that's right. I mean, <laughs> otherwise you'd be listening to half an hour of just dead air. Well, we can just call Maria and Leslie again. That makes yeah. it easier. Yeah, it was good. Well, thanks, you guys. Appreciate, uh, appreciate both the conversation and uh, you giving our podcast love so that's great yeah thank you thanks Thanks, guys and uh, as always subscribe to our podcast on apple itunes uh or your local podcast uh device and follow mike smith in the province and myself in the vancouver sun thanks so much uh, for listening see you next time